biblical perspective. There will be several scripture passages that I will be reading in the course of the sermon. And so I would like to uh, start you off by reading specifically one, Ecclesiastes 11, verses 1 through 6, for your consideration. The sermon is not explicitly based on this passage, but this passage, I think, uh, would be one that would play a, a good part in our consideration of this topic. Cast your bread upon the waters, for after many days you will find it again. Give portions to seven, yes, to eight, for you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain upon the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there will it lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning and at evening. Let not your hands be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Let us pray. Dear Father, we give thanks for your word, and we give thanks for the principles that are taught so clearly in your word. We pray that we would learn from your word as it relates to every area of our life. We pray that we would humble ourselves before you and be eager to drink up the wisdom and knowledge that is found in your word through the application of your Holy Spirit. I pray that my words would be faithful and in keeping with your word, because it is your word alone that is holy and just and true, changing human lives in the course of human history through your powerful working in our midst. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been reading, as is my general practice, several books at once. And one of the ones that, uh, that a friend loaned me a couple weeks ago was this one, D-Day, June 6, 1944, The Climactic Battle of World War II by Stephen Ambrose. <clears throat> Stephen Ambrose, of course, is the one who wrote the book on Meriwether Lewis <clears throat> that uh, was also a bestseller, and he's an excellent historian. I very much enjoyed uh, reading what he writes. One of the things that I found out about him in the course of this is that he served on (coughs) Eisenhower's staff, not during World War II, but as a historian trying to document (coughs) the course of World War II and specifically D-Day following the event itself. Uh, (coughs) And (coughs) in the acknowledgments, he indicates that he has conducted, I think, 11 tours to the, the... the coast of Normandy, to show people an overview of this whole event, which I thought would be a, a fascinating, fascinating sort of thing. <clears throat> but in the beginning, there are several quotes. Uh, one of them by Winston Churchill says, the most difficult and complicated operation ever to take place. Joseph Stalin said about D-Day, The history of war does not know of an undertaking comparable to it for breadth of conception, grandeur of scale, <coughs> and mastery of execution. As I've been looking at uh, this issue, Y2K, the Y2K bug, whatever you want, however you want to classify it or call it, it seemed to me that there was, a, there was a, an interesting comparison between what is coming up December 31st, 1999, and what happened on beaches of Normandy, June 6, 1944. This book details 
I guess uh, about halfway through is up to all the planning in order to execute <clears throat> the events of D-Day. They talk about the unbelievable <clears throat> details that were mastered through this planning process. The phenomenal scope of the boats <clears throat> and the landing craft. There was a man named Higgins, for instance, who uh, apparently they, they had the Higgins craft that, that they used for most of the landings. And, and this man just about single-handedly <clears throat> provided most of these for, for the Army and the Navy at this point in time. And he had a monstrous business that since went uh, belly up. And uh, <clears throat> Stephen Ambrose gives him a great deal of credit. He said one of, he's one of the, this is one of the few <clears throat> heroes of D-Day whose names nobody knows. Uh, but the, or the artillery that was involved, the training of the airborne troops, the planning down to the minute minutes that there would be for the bombardment of the coast as the infantry and the tanks got off the ships and started towards the shore. The five-minute, six-minute bombardment. And then it was on the beaches. And what they had done to prepare for this was astounding in the south of England. One of the things that they had done is they had gotten every battle group and they had made models without telling the people where it was going to be. They had made models of these areas. And the men would come into the mess hall or wherever it was set up and examine these things by the hour so they knew exactly what they were to look for. Without telling those who were involved in the training, they had also found the best beaches and shorelines in England where the, 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 the coast of Normandy was mashed by the English shoreline. And then they had put up all the fortifications that the Germans had, and they would run the soldiers through these training again and again and again and again. <clears throat> and so you see that the training and the preparation for D-Day was phenomenal. So that the purpose was when they hit the shores, when they left the day that it was real, it was going to take place, that everything would happen from instinct. And so as we look at Y2K and the turning of the millennium, we see that there is a great deal of planning going on with regard to this as well. Now, very few of us are involved in anything that would require any specific uh, any of the specific effort that's going into Y2K, such as the computer programmers are doing, to see to it that we are ready for this event that's going to happen, not like D-Day, which was an uncertain date, <clears throat> and it was postponed one day when it was scheduled to happen. But for us, December 31st will come at a specific time, and there will be no turning back from that. And so, again, it is like D-Day. It's a time in which <clears throat> the world around us <clears throat> is making massive efforts to prepare for. <clears throat> and so as we as Christians <clears throat> examine this period in time, we are looking at what is required of us, what is necessary in our lives to be prepared for this. <clears throat> Last Sunday, we looked at an overall view of Y2K. This Sunday, we're looking at waiting and preparing, and next Sunday we will look at the actual event itself. What will we do? Now, it's encouraging to note that the world around us is seeking to help the church prepare for Y2K. Here's a news article from Thursday, October, excuse me, I'm going <clears> to <throat> post-date it some, August 19th, 
uh, from Religion Today. Bankers have written a sermon they want pastors to deliver to calm Y2K fears. Now, if I'd realized this earlier, I would have had a, would have been a cinch. <laughs> the American Bankers Association, a trade group, <clears throat> wrote what it calls a generic sermon for pastors, priests, and rabbis to persuade their congregants not to, guess what? What? Panic, but not to bury their money in the ground. Aha! Maybe your father was in on this, Dulcie. <laughs> <clears throat> They say we want to go into the new millennium with hope, eagerness, and faith in this new century, should be millennium, of promise. We don't want to be crouched in our basements with candles, matches, and guns, the document reads. The group urged depositors to keep their money in banks, quote, where it is protected and insured by the federal government, end quote. And then a religion today quoted from James Logan, pastor of South Tryon Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, who doesn't think much of the idea of a generic sermon, he told the Charlotte Observer. Quote, I really believe in seeking what God would have me say to my congregation, end quote. Fancy that! (laughs) Despite the fact that religion today, the conservative news service, SRN News, which is featured on WHCB and WMIT, and other news sources featured this piece of news from the American Banking Association, the sermon itself is elusive. It appears to be available on the American Banking Association website, but without membership in this organization and the appropriate attendant password, the area of the website in which it resides is unavailable to pastors. (laughs) Good thing, too, because I'm sure some pastors would be tempted to take a Sunday off and preach the sermon instead. Based upon this, I would suggest that the banking world work on getting itself ready for Y2K and not worry about seeking to generate confidence through churches and synagogues. Because if this is any illustration of how they are assuring us that they are ready for Y2K, they ain't. (laughs) A sermon that's only available to bankers. The last time I heard a banker preach a sermon was I can't remember when. (laughs) But you might say... If only we had the predictions of Nostradamus to guide us. And so in preparation for the series, I got out a book on Nostradamus. I said, well, we're talking about prophecy here. We're dealing with prophecies. Possibly true. Most certainly some scurrilous. False. So I'll look to the most scurrilous of them all, Nostradamus. So I got out a big, big, big book. Some of you have seen me carrying it around. When I brought it into the church this morning, I thought, if someone walks, drives their car by, and they see me carrying this volume, they'll assume it's a Bible It's so big. <laughs> and so I've been looking through this to see, you know, what, what we have in here, because it's been another fad that seems to be related to this craze for prophecy and knowing what's going to happen before it happens. And so I, let me read you a short prophecy of Nostradamus. It's translated into English. It goes like this. Close to Lake Geneva, it, in brackets, she, will be conducted by a young foreign girl desiring to betray the city. Excuse me. Dying, desiring to betray the city. Before it's her murder at Augsburg, a great retinue, 
and the, or those of the Rhine will come to invade it. <clears throat> Significant. <clears throat> Author John Hogue, who at last count has written three monstrous books on the life and prophecies of Michel Nostradamus, comments about this prophecy, saying, Nostradamus tries a new angle for predicting the fall of Calvinist Geneva. <clears throat> he projects his bias against a failed, <clears throat> again, in a failed prophecy against John Calvin, rationalizing that someday the Lutheran kingdoms of Germany would invade and conquer Geneva. This, of course, never happened. So <clears throat> we look at these sorts of things, and we come again to the fact that there is nothing certain about Y2K. Unless it comes from God, no prophecy is sure. The modern art of prognostication, signifying a more educated guess than is envisioned in prediction, is also uncertain. So we are left, as we saw this past Sunday, with a broad range of predictions concerning the event known as Y2K and the Y2K bug and its effect upon our culture and society. How, then, do we know what sort of course to pilot with such great uncertainties? <clears throat> the way that we know this is by taking the course of action that Christians must always take when looking into subjects on which the scriptures do not apparently and explicitly speak. The first of those actions that we must take is to pray. We're told directly in James 1.5, and by implication throughout Scripture, that wisdom comes from the Lord and that he grants it to those who request it of him. For those who have Christ as their Savior, this is an unending resource, the waters that never dry up, not only in seeking wisdom for how to prepare for this event, but in seeking God's direction for any event or on any subject for any decision for which Scripture does not give a definitive answer. James 1.5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Not only does the Lord give wisdom in any and all circumstances to those who seek it, he alone provides the resources that we seek from him at such a time. Zechariah 10.1 says this, Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. <clears throat> it is the Lord who makes the storm clouds. He gives showers of rain to men and plants of the field to everyone. The idols speak deceit. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep oppressed for a lack of a shepherd. And trust in God and seeking from him <coughs> is not, only, <coughs> not only provides wisdom in, in a matter such as this, but through God also the provisions necessary to get through any and every circumstance are available and are provided. <coughs> Prayer, then, must begin and continue throughout the process of preparing biblically for the coming of the third millennium. Having considered that is the beginning of our course, what is next? Next, we must consider. We cannot <clears throat> ask for wisdom from the Lord and then ignore our thoughts. Ignore the things that he places in our minds, which he has given to us as a gift for examining things, memorizing things, considering things, and making decisions. We must take stock of the information, the counsel, the biblical principles <clears throat> that come from the Lord. We must weigh them and we must consider them carefully. <clears throat> The information and the impressions <clears throat> we will process will come in different ways and from different sources. Let me mention three sources. The first, obviously, is Scripture. 
First, we have to determine, does Scripture say anything explicit and specific about the subject? As we saw last week, while there are many who are pointing to the return of Christ in the midst of this, and I mentioned the uh, Jenkins and LaHaye books with regard to this and, and the, the great interest that there are in these books and in this topic at this time, none, at least none that I am aware of, are pointing to explicit passages that would shed direct light on this upcoming event, Y2K, revealing whether it will cause serious problems or not. The next step in seeking to determine if the Bible speaks expressly about a subject, because if it speaks expressly, then principally we are not all that concerned about it. But if it does not speak expressly about it, then we need to look at biblical principles, some of which we did last week in examining previous judgments from the Lord, why they happened, how they happened, and what the result was for the believers in the midst of these judgments. We move further into related issues that come to mind <clears throat> concerning this event and the possible consequences of the Y2K bug. Some of the principles or questions that would be very obvious would obviously jump to mind in this situation are the following. Is it appropriate for Christians to prepare for possible disasters? What are biblical precedents? One of the things that I like to do as much as anything, and, and, and the best area where I like to do this is through the historical books of the Old Testament, the Kings, the Chronicles, the Samuel books, and also the Pentateuch. Look for principles do you find an example of a godly king preparing for a disaster, for instance? Uh, that would be an obvious uh, opportunity to look for scriptural principles and scriptural evidence to point out those principles. Another question, how does trusting in the Lord relate to expecting an impending disaster? How should Christians view other believers who have come to the opposite conclusion? regarding whether the Y2K bug will cause disaster. An obvious question, I think, in the midst of the current debate among Christians in the world in general. How does a Christian balance the requirement of providing for his family with the requirement of helping those in need in pre preparation for a possible disaster? It seems to me that this is one of the biggest questions and principles that must be examined, and I hope to get into this next week. The tension or the balance in providing for self and family versus providing for the world. Beyond this, there can be <clears throat> any number of further issues to address which are brought about by reacting to the way others are approaching the year 2000. And even the response, their recommendations for how we should respond to what they call the impending crisis or the blip, whatever they regard it as. <clears throat> Such as, is it appropriate to buy guns in order to be prepared to defend oneself in the event of a disaster? Some of these biblical principles we're going to have to examine because others are saying, you must do this. Well, <clears throat> either you say, yes, sir, or you say, now, wait a minute. Why must I do that? Is there a biblical reason for that? And what will happen if I do that? <clears throat> and what are the biblical principles for how I would respond in the various situations that might, that might occur as a result of that? <clears throat> Let me again emphasize in this that the biblical conclusions one person draws from Scripture 
is not necessarily going to be the conclusion that everyone draws. In some cases, opposite conclusions are acceptable because the Word of God has not spoken clearly on the issue. And the Lord desires people to follow their conscience in the matter. Having said that, let me also point out that some biblical principles, such as the requirement that Christians help those around them who are in need, is inescapable. And it is impossible to dodge that requirement, even in the midst of a crisis that people think is going to happen, such as might occur through Y2K. There is no room in these situations for differing views, because the Bible has spoken so clearly. In the midst of seeking the Lord's wisdom as we consider this issue and its ramifications, we must also seek counsel. Not only the word of Scripture, the word of God on the matter, but also counsel. First, the counsel of fellow believers. And we, various ones of us, have had numerous uh, interesting and and fascinating discussions of this issue. Uh, Talking last week with with Jerry and uh, Sandy McCormick about the whole thing, and, and we were discussing it, and I've discussed with some of the rest of you. I know you've talked with others about these issues. Uh, do you get a generator? Uh, how much food do you store if you're concerned about these things? And, and, and it's fascinating because the Scripture says that when people talk together, it's as iron sharpening iron. <clears throat> You're honing one another to a sharp point and able to be, in order to be able to attack the job at hand with efficiency and directness and effectiveness. There are many people who go into a corner to make a decision, although scripture is clear on the requirement for believers to seek counsel. Those who go into a corner ponder, read scripture, pray, then they come out with their decision. I've often heard the decisions made in such a manner, and the result is often far from satisfactory. Although the issue is not one of seeking to please brothers and sisters by involving them in the decision-making process, the outcome is generally much more favorable if all angles have been addressed, and the favor of the surrounding Christian community is frequently more easily gained. if the Christian community is aware of the thought and examination that has gone into the process. In other words, I don't think there's just one reason why God tells us to seek the counsel of fellow believers. One of the reasons, obviously, is that I may have some very big blind spots, and often have had some very big blind spots. And I'm thankful for a godly wife who points her hole in her finger in the hole of those blind spots. And also, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the elders here at the church, those who have been elders over the years, and dear friends, uh, we need each other on these matters. But it, it goes beyond pointing out blind spots. Sometimes it's coming up with better ideas and clear scriptural principles, and sometimes it's the process of having worked together on a decision or a discussion The resulting conclusion has the blessing of the group. The group says, yes, this is is right. This is the right decision in the matter. This is why, for instance, our church and most churches are based upon a leadership principle of a group of men who serve as a board, a council, a session, call it what you will, together with the pastor to consider together and make wise decisions. Over the years, the best decisions made are the decisions that are made jointly. 
There are any number of people who have special insight into this matter with regard to Y2K. I've asked a Christian with broad business experience, leadership experience, investing experience, academic experience, and other experience about his response to this situation. Some of you know him. His response was that he knew a wealthy man who had sold all his property, bought land out in the country, was building homes for himself and all his children. But the man that I asked thought it was, I guess, I wouldn't go so far as to say he thought it was ludicrous, but he was astounded. Because his feeling was that the Y2K bug would turn out to be a very small problem. I've asked another man who works heavily in a computer field, and he also does not think it's a big matter. He's traveled extensively throughout the world. He's talked with financial experts and power experts who think their equipment can handle it. He said that personally he's putting back some water, but not much else. Further, he thinks it will be a good time to buy stocks, which, of course, would indicate if it's going to be a good time to buy stocks, (laughs) it means that there is going to be some problem. So I didn't address that apparent dichotomy between there's not going to be much of a problem, but it will be a good time to buy stocks. Uh, However, maybe it's covered by the next thing that he uh, commented. He says the real issue is whether or not the public will panic with regard to all the possibilities, whether they happen or don't. How will the public respond to it? And that is, of course, why the banking community is trying to say, don't take your money out of the bank because they're afraid to run on the banks. Counsel, seeking counsel, not only seeking first and foremost the wisdom of Scripture, which is God's word, but also counsel, which begins with believers, also includes information from experts, people who have expertise in various fields. Information such as the following. I referred to this last week. A study by commanders of U.S. Navy and Marines bases around the world says many U.S. cities will see likely widespread failures in power and water systems because of the so-called Y2K computer glitch. In a study which was updated in the last two weeks, predicted probable partial water system failure in Dallas, Nashville, Tennessee, Houston, Baton Rouge, Montgomery, Alabama, Tulsa, and 59 other cities. The loss of power and problems with natural gas was also forecast for major cities, natural gas, loss of power, for major cities in the southeast and the southwest region of the United States. That's us. <laughs> so often in a case such as this, both sides of the equation must be examined. And when both the good and the bad are considered, the believers must process it all together, considering in their process their impressions and insight into the matter. This is the way in which we come to a decision based upon what has been examined and considered, putting together the scriptural basis, putting together the counsel that we have found and sought, and prayer as an overarching principle in all of this. This is the point at which sincere believers examining the same information and biblical principles will come to different conclusions about their expectations of the event and their preparation. It is crucial for us, the only people who can provide this next function, that in the midst of all of this, we repent. 
Now, it seems, even for me to say it, I don't know if it seems so to you, but even for me to say it, it seems like I'm dropping a non sequitur in here. Boop! Going along. Plan, 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 consider, counsel, source the scriptures, pray. <clears throat> Repent? Repent? <clears throat> if you remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar, and this Sunday I'm going to get it right, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel... <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that frightened Daniel when he asked Daniel to interpret it. Because the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had foretold that Nebuchadnezzar was going to go insane for a period of time. He was going to live like an animal out in the fields, drenched by the rain, <clears throat> eating the grass of the field. <clears throat> Daniel was frightened about what this foretold about Nebuchadnezzar. This was to happen because of Nebuchadnezzar's pride and his exalting himself above God. So Daniel warned Nebuchadnezzar to turn from the pride of his ways that would lead to his insanity. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar failed to do so, finally reaping the foretold disaster when he was examining the pride of his gardens, which, was one, which were one of the seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. <clears throat> And Daniel, in chapter 4, verse 21, says this to the king upon interpreting his dream to him. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. <clears throat> and as a result of this time of insanity, Nebuchadnezzar came out of it because God brought him out of it. And the announcement, the pronouncement that he made after it is recorded in the book of Daniel. There is one God alone, and that is the Lord God. He is Daniel's God. There is no other. <clears throat> in the same way, we should turn from our pride in our civilization and accomplishments, humble ourselves before the Lord, <clears throat> going even further than seeking personal forgiveness through personal repentance. Personal forgiveness and personal repentance is crucial, yes. But if we follow the example that Nehemiah did when he was in the court of the king as the wine taster for the king, the king's steward, and he learned of the, the terrible state that, of course, he knew that he was in terrible state, but he was reminded that it had not gotten any better when his brothers came to visit. Terrible state of Israel, Jerusalem completely destroyed, gates burned, <clears throat> and what he did was he got on his knees and he prayed before the Lord saying, Lord God, forgive the sins of my people. Forgive the sins of my forefathers. Forgive us our sins. <clears throat> and so repentance, I believe, is a crucial preparation for this time and period. Have you been seeking the Lord's forgiveness? in the light of the possibilities with regard to the coming millennium. <clears throat> we should be. We should also be seeking for him to stay his hand from disaster through this, if it should so please him. Is this something that we've heard suggested as a plan for preparation for Y2K? We pray for sun if we're planning to be outdoors, as we did Seriously, as we prepared for our Boundary Waters canoeing trip, and God blessed us greatly with magnificent and glorious sun. <clears throat> we pray for protection throughout all of our driving. 
as we have been granted most blessedly as a church family throughout all the driving that has been, and other travels that have been involved over the course of the summer. We pray for protection from various and sundry disasters. And shouldn't we be praying for the dire possibilities concerning Y2K not to occur? Following this, whatever our position regarding our expectations, we must prepare. How we do this will depend upon our conclusions up to this point. But I would point out something fascinating in the midst of this. Well, some have an increased awareness of the imminence, and that's a theological term, term meaning the anytime possibility. Some have an awareness of the imminence of Christ's return, the fact that he could come right now or that he could come tomorrow or he could come the next day. There's nothing keeping him. All of the requirements are in place for his immediate return. <coughs> While some have an increased awareness of this because of the issue of Y2K, It seems that all the preparations that are being promoted in our world today, and indeed in the Christian culture, are physical in nature. used to be in the past, at least, you'd see some men walking around with sandwich boards saying, repent for the day of judgment is at hand, or something along those lines. But everything you hear about Y2K, even if it comes from a source that's saying, that, that is providing some sort of link with the judgment and the coming of Christ. Even even an organization or a church that's trying to say these two may somehow be linked, <clears throat> the preparations that are being promoted are physical and material preparations. How could we get from here to there? <clears throat> How can we conclude if this is an event that is reminding us <clears throat> of the limited time that man has on earth and the fact that it's not guaranteed that any of it will be a good period of time. Just read a book like this and you see how disastrous and terrible so much of, the, of this century has been for so many people in this world. How could it be <clears throat> that what we are concerned about is the physical preparations and we're not thinking about or concerned about the spiritual preparations? <clears throat> There are many who see this situation as the most threatening. They're suggesting drastic preparations for personal and family protection from gangs, riots, and marauders for a long period of no water and no no food supplies, for a complete lack of natural resources for heat and transportation. Some are even suggesting going so far as storing seed so that when the whole food system breaks down as they are Predicting individuals have the resources to keep growing food. What about spiritual preparation? Why is there no call for national repentance on the part of the churches? Why are there no references to Nineveh, for instance, encouraging believers and unbelievers alike to repent before the Lord and honor him, so that if there should be a judgment, that he would as it says in the words of Scripture, change his mind and not pour out this judgment upon us. Because having created this problem ourselves, in our continuance of pride, we are looking to ourselves and our own preparations and resources to resolve the problem. We made it. We can fix it, is what we're saying. As I mentioned in conclusion last week, We cannot emphasize too much the importance of using this time of uncertainty to encourage people to flee to Christ from the wrath to come. 
Are families taking up family devotions because of their concern for the impact of Y2K? Are individuals devoting themselves to scripture and prayer, worship and study in God's word? Are churches filled with people seeking to know Christ and grow in him? Are believers ministering to one another and planning ministries to their communities in the event of disaster in order to fulfill the commands of the Lord to care for those in need? These would be the most prudent and are the most urgent preparations necessary for this event. When the world goes blithely on its way, seeking physical material solutions to this event, then we see the conditions are present in our society, which existed in the time of Noah, and we're reminded that these very conditions will exist at the time of Christ's return, as, as Christ tells us in Matthew 24, verses 38 and 39. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. <clears throat> they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Beyond these most crucial matters concerning our preparation for what may come are the material, physical concerns. I read to you again from Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6. Cast your bread upon the waters, for after many days you will find it again. Give portions to seven, yes, to eight, for you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour out rain upon the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there will it lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in the mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning and at evening. Let not your hands be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. According to this passage, it is wise to divest, to spread your investments in various places because the future is so uncertain. This passage could be written expressly for such a time as the event that we expect. Many are looking to the clouds in the sky, fearful of what may come. But the wisdom given here is to make provision for the future, expecting that provision to provide what is needed in due time. And in the midst of the provision, spread out your alternatives. Now, I'm counting on having natural gas come January, the year 2000. But if we don't, I was motivated last spring to go over to Brady Melvin's home when he cut down a tree and to get three loads of wood, which are still, to my wife's dismay, sitting around in my backyard, unstacked and unsplit, (coughs) also unburnt. (coughs) You remember last year, we had a great snowstorm. Bristol, Virginia was without water and power for several days. (coughs) Well, during that time, some of that time, we stayed in our house and I used up all the remaining wood in my woodpile. Having had that experience, I decided to get Brady's wood so that whether through Y2K or another winter storm, it doesn't matter much which, I'm going to have a warm house. (laughs) Anybody who wants to come and be warm in my house is welcome to come. Call it my snowy day fund, if you will. The following passage may well provide some guidance for this time. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? 
When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. And poverty and scarcity are certainly much surer than Y2K and the, and the results from it. <clears throat> but we need to be like the ant and consider and prepare. In the event of financial disruptions, the counsel that all are giving is simply biblical advice. Get out of debt. This is advice that is being given at every time of the year. It's given throughout Scripture in numerous places. It says debt is the result of certain spiritual consequences and has spiritual consequences. And uh, all of the warnings that come to us indicate that debt is not something that we want to have when the millennium changes. One of the things that happens if you're in debt is you not only have difficulty with yourself, but many people who have ample financial resources are even more to blame because they are in debt. And as a result of their debt, they will be completely unable to help anyone else when they should be able to do so. We should seek to live well within our financial means, whether we're afraid of the Y2K bug being a case of the sniffles or a case of pneumonia. Have food and water on hand. We were fascinated when Francis Ogiman last visited us to learn of the, the, the food provisions that his church provides for those who give to the church. If it's ascertained, he does it in an interesting way. There are many people in the community who, who would constantly come to them. So they determine if a person who is given to the church, and if that person has been a giver during his good times, then if he has hard times, he comes to the church, ascertains through the treasurer that he has given, and gets a, a chip or whatever, and he goes to the person who has the supplies, and the supplies are rice and beans. And that person is able to take rice and beans home. So we've got a lot of rice in our basement and a lot of beans. <laughs> I'm just telling you what we've been thinking about and doing with regard to this. <clears throat> we use the rice all the time. The beans a little bit uh, more rarely. But uh, <clears throat> these are things for your consideration. <clears throat> Other experts say have records on hand, Social Security records explicitly, so that you can prove if the government computers, which will probably possibly be the first to go down, that you have certain things that you paid in certain things and that you have specific records to prove it. Other records are also helpful. Finally, there are two further preparations we need to make. Very short and very sweet. We need to trust in the Lord for our provision and our peace, and we need to anticipate his return. So next week, we will examine what we will be doing in the midst of the change of the millennium. Let us pray. Dear Father, we pray that you would teach us the things that we need to know in in order to live godly lives. We pray that you would forgive us for our sins. We pray that you would forgive us for the sins of our fathers. We pray that you would forgive our land for all of our wickedness, all of our pride. We pray that you would keep this event, Y2K, from being a serious problem. But we ask that whatever happens, that you would cause it to be for your glory. She would cause people to turn to you, that we would see the marvelous work of your Holy Spirit bringing revival in our land. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.